your hands, everybody, if you got what it takes. Because I'm Curtis Blow, and I want you to know that these are the breaks. Welcome to the Rockstack Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm here with my colleagues, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Morrison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And joining us all the way from Brooklyn, New York, to talk about all that's new in the world's largest archive of music journalism is Mr. Richard Grable. Welcome, Richard. Thank you. Richard's career has taken him all the way from reviewing for New York Rocker to working as a lawyer for acts such as Sonic Youth, Liz Fair, Animal Collective, and the Lumineers. And we're going to talk to him about that. We're also going to talk to him about his crucial NME pieces about the early hip-hop scene in New York. Plus, we'll hear clips from an audio interview with Roxy Club Night promoter Cool Lady Blue, and we'll revisit the Beastie Boys' Hello Nasty album. But Richard, let's start with the first pieces you wrote for New York Rocker, with the earliest that we have on, on the Rock's Back Pages site from early 1978. How did you get your foot in that door, and or when did you start actually writing about music? It really began with reading about the early CBGB scene in the Village Voice and deciding to go check it out for myself. And it was really fortuitous. It just so happened that my first night at CBGB's, the bill was Talking Heads followed by television. Fantastic. Not bad. (laughs) (laughs) Talking Heads was still a trio at this point. Jerry Harrison hadn't joined. And between being just absolutely amazed at what I was seeing. David Byrne, you know, he had that lyric, don't touch me, I'm a real life wire. And on stage, he was vibrating like a live wire. And then television came on and absolutely, to use a cliche, blew my mind. And that was really my my conversion moment. I, I, I thought music is back You know, because I had been a bit bored with arena rock and prog rock and the mainstream things that were happening at that time. But after seeing television, I thought, whoa, music is back and I must find a way to get involved with it. And the first thing I thought of was going into the office of the school newspaper at the college I was attending at the time, University of Pennsylvania. Okay. And said to them, hey, I want to start writing music reviews for you because there's music happening that nobody on this campus knows about, and I have to start telling them. And they said, okay, fine. And so I started writing for my school newspaper. And then that led to writing for the local, what we called handout sheets. At the front of the club, there would be a pile of these free newspapers. that The the newspapers supported themselves by advertising. And I, that was my first paying job as a writer. So I accumulated a a few reviews that I had published in the local handout sheet. And with those, I went to see the editor of New York Rocker and said, I want to start writing for you. And they said, "Okay." And that's how I started with the music journalism. That was Andy Schwartz, presumably by that point was Andy Schwartz. Yeah. Yes, it was. Yes, Yes, that was Andy. Okay. How did you get your foot in the door with NME in London? So I got an assignment to interview Wire for the New York rocker and wire were on, I guess it was harvest records, which was a part of EMI Mm -hmm. and, and, and EMI, even though New York rocker was a small publication, EMI were willing to pay for me for a flight and, and a hotel for a couple of days to London. So I flew to London 
and I interviewed Wire, and it was a fantastic experience. They had just finished recording their second album, Chairs Missing. Chairs Missing, yeah. And prior to the interview, me and the band members and Mike Thorne, who produced the record, sat around and listened to it at Air Studios in London. So I was really, I think, maybe the first person outside of the band and Mike Thorne to hear that album, Gosh. which was fantastic. And, and I loved the album, and, and, and they were smart guys and gave me a very good interview. So I was like, oh, this trip is working out. Now I'm going to see if I can break into the enemy. So I call. I didn't have any special numbers. I called the, the publicly available you know, front desk number. And I said, can I please speak to Neil Spencer? He was the editor at the time. And to this day, I can't explain why they put me through. Perhaps <laughs> it was the American accent, you know, sure. because probably they didn't get a lot of calls with American accents. But they put me through to Neil Spencer. And I said, hi, Neil. I'm a writer for the New York Rocker, and I'm in town interviewing Wire, and I would like to write for you. And he said, well. As it happens, Lisa Robinson, our New York correspondent, just quit. <laughs> and we actually need a You new couldn't make it up, could you? You couldn't no. make it up. <laughs> so, and, and I, I'll never forget his exact words, which were, you should pop round and we'll have a chat. <laughs> <laughs> which is not how any American editor would have put it, but that's how Neil Spencer put it. Excellent. And so I came to Neil's office with a piece couple pieces I had written for the New York Rocker, and he sat there reading them right in front of me and then looked up and said, okay, you know, we'll give you a try. Wonderful. And that was the beginning of my NME career. Fantastic. Meanwhile, the enemy did have a photographer in New York, a fantastic fellow named Joe Stevens. Yes. Oh, yeah. And I suppose Joe and I were plugged into similar information networks because we both went to see the B-52s at CBGB's. This was before they were signed. I hadn't met Joe yet, but he was there taking pics, and I was there taking notes, and I sent in copy for a live review, and I was over the moon. My live review was just like, oh, my God, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and Joe had, had taken some fantastic snaps, and that ran as the lead live review. With oh, a big wow. picture by Joe and a, and a lot of copy by me. And I was like, whoa, I'm off to a good start. <laughs> Very good start. <laughs> Captain Snaps, as uh, Charles Sean Murray dubbed Joe. That's right. We had right. him on the episode before last. We had, we had Charlie on, and I think he mentioned Joe Stevens in that episode. And I met Joe, The only time we've crossed paths was in New York 40 years ago. And, and you... I can't remember how or why we met other than I was there with the birthday party and you and Joe, I just remember meeting you and Joe together and it was a, it was a great pleasure. And, um, there was yeah, a time so. when we were joined at the hip, Joe and I, <laughs> yes, you were <laughs> quite rightly. Yeah. We, we were always at the same gigs and going to the same things. Yeah. By the way, I don't know the following for an absolute fact. It's more rumor that I heard at the time. But I, I, what I heard is that my live review of the B-52s was read by an A&R person in, at Island Records in London 
And it inspired that person to fly to New York and meet the B-52s and ended up signing them. Fantastic. So I'm told my first NME piece wound up getting a record deal for a band. They owe you. <laughs> they, they owe you, Richard. <laughs> it sounds very plausible to me because in a way that's how things did happen often in those days, didn't it? Yes. So you're writing for NME, and if we like jump forward to late 1980, I remember this piece, of course. Well, two pieces. You went to see Curtis Blow supporting the Whalers at Madison Square Garden. Well, I mean, you went to see the Whalers, and Curtis Blow was like probably bottom of the bill. I don't know. But you mention, you talk about Curtis Blow and this rapper's style. And then, like, literally in the next issue, there's this interview with with Curtis Blow, and and that's really one of the first pieces about like rap or hip hop that I remember. And I'm just going to quote briefly from you know you you say he says it's all about how fast, how clever your rhymes are, how creative they are, and how good your rhythm is. And you finish the piece by saying whether the rappers turn out to be a brief spark or a long lived genre is beside the point. They have already brought sass, sex, and street smarts in huge quantities to present day r&b funk so that's a that's a lovely way to finish that piece and then the following year there's these you know two amazing pieces that i mean i'll never forget the 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 cover of the 30th of may 1981 issue with with your rap story and then later in the year you you go up to the south bronx to interview grandmaster flash take us back to that time and your first kind of inklings as to what was happening at that sort of street level, Richard? Well, I sort of referred to this a bit in the Curtis Blow piece, which is that rap at that time, until Curtis Blow's song, The Breaks, hit, rap was a rumor. It was something you heard was happening, but couldn't find it. You, mm-hmm. you, you, you didn't know where it was. Um, it, wasn't, it certainly wasn't on the radio. You had to search for the records. It was basically two record labels at the time, Enjoy Records and Sugar Hill Records. And they were literally distributing the records to independent record stores out of the trunk of their car. It was a very grassroots mom and pop scene. But it was it was something that New York music hipsters such as myself were immediately drawn to and, and interested in. So I started trying to find the people that were responsible. But it wasn't easy to find them. The song The Breaks by Curtis Blow really changed everything because it was on the radio. You were hearing it everywhere. It was blasting out of every boombox that every kid had. And it was on a major label. Yeah. So the, the, the normal roots for getting to the artist through the publicists were there. Mm-hmm. And I could actually get an interview with Curtis Blow, and I did. And yeah, that that piece on Curtis Blow was certainly one of the first pieces that appeared about hip hop. And you know, I didn't want to make bold predictions about the longevity 
although I think I started doing that in the later pieces that Barney just referred to. But I knew it was important music. I, I, I knew immediately that it was injecting something into the music scene that had been missing. I mean, it's, it's interesting, the sort of accidental process of discovering this sort of stuff. A few years back, I hung out with Charlie Ahern, who directed the movie Wild Style. And he talks about his brother was an artist, and he had a studio in the South Bronx. And he was going up to the South Bronx to visit his brother. And he's looking out of the window, and these people were putting on what, park jams and basketball courts. And he's thinking, you know, what is this? What, what, are the, what are these guys doing? You know, it was, it was really under the radar, wasn't it? Yeah. It was, it was very much under the radar. There was, there was really no mainstream media coverage. Mm-hmm. But the same crowd that would be plugged into, oh, you have to go see the B-52s at CBGB's, mm-hmm. that same crowd was plugged into, ooh, something is happening with street music coming out of the Bronx, and we should yeah, yeah. find out about it. And that's summed up by Blondie's Rapture, isn't it? Which, you know, as I checked the data then, it was kind of, it came out even earlier than I remembered. I mean, I think it came out January 81. So, you know, that was the first time many people heard heard of, or certainly many white people heard of Fab Five Freddy, for example. So in, in the piece that came out that I mentioned earlier, the cover story, 30th of May 81, you say, that, okay, so you say last summer when Curtis Blows the Breaks was the sound of New York City, skeptics said it was a novelty hit and that rapping would never last. They were wrong. So Blondie's Rapture hitting the top of the pop charts in the States finally pushed rap music over the line that divides minority cults from true pop crazies. Suddenly rap is the thing to dance to, to play at parties, to be curious about. A form instigated by black teenagers in the South Bronx is becoming indispensable for blacks and whites catching up to the new funk. And you interview uh, very entertainingly the Funky 4 Plus 1 at length in that in that piece and i've said that's this the piece. joint that's the joint is still like probably my favorite like early sort of rap sugar hill record it's so charming i love that you say richard you say if you're only going to buy one rap record this is the one yeah. which is obviously funny in hindsight because i guess it, you know it comes back to something we touched on earlier which is like no one's sure whether this is going to last or not yeah. and obviously now it's you know the predominant form of popular music but it, i just love that if you're only going to buy one that's the one it's spot on in a very early woman <laughs> rapper as well Shah Rock, you know one of, pretty much the first you know uh which was in itself is, is pretty astonishing yes. oh i think well there was there was sequence yes angie the b sequence. she was in sequence who then went on as angie stone to have a an r&b career some many years later but sequence and Shah Rock were the were, were the yep. first And interviewing Funky 4 Plus 1 was a hilarious experience (laughs) because they were so young and so completely naive, but so full of this amazing energy. They were just thrilled that someone from a newspaper wanted to talk to them. And they they did not have an interview game. You know, they they hadn't developed the ways that most artists developed to, you know, eventually to kind of shield themselves from too much from revealing mm-hmm. too much mm-hmm. they were just willing to say anything and they yes. would have answered any question yeah and so yeah i got a really candid unguarded interview out of them and it was fantastic She's the joy. It up, y'all. Do, do it up. The Shah Rock is going to show you how you get real rough i'm Shah Rock, and i can't be stopped for all the fly guys i will hit the top did you ever go uptown to like the disco fever and places like that? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I started going to Disco Fever, and it's, it's, it's very good that you mentioned Disco Fever. People often forget about the venues that incubated mm-hmm. the music, and Disco Fever was certainly one of them. I started going up there frequently. I would usually be the only white person in the club, right. except perhaps for the owner. The owner of Disco Fever was an Italian guy, Sal. Wait, hang on a second. I think I... Albertiello. Fantastic. Amazing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, is that correct? No, I got yes. that right. You got that exactly right. We have, I think we have an audio interview with Sal on, on Rock's Back Pages, which is, which is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, his, so, you know, his club was, a, was, was an important locus for people to meet and hang out and make cookups that would lead, you know, to, to making records. And it was, it was also, you know, a testing ground to see if a record worked. And the vibe was absolutely beautiful up there. It was absolutely a party vibe. Everyone was there to have fun. Sal set a tone for the place that, you know, we're going to be inclusive and we're not going to have fights. And that's how it was. And it was, yeah, yeah. It was, a, it was a great hang. Fantastic. We're talking of clubs. Why don't we turn to our new audio interview, Mark, and we'll, we'll, we'll hear... We'll hear about the Roxy and the incredible nights at, at the Roxy. I was going to say, yeah, and, and in terms of venues, uh, the, the Roxy was very important and, and a place called Negril before that. Yes, this is exactly what we're going to talk about. This is Cool Lady Blue, an English woman who moved to New York, got a green card. Her first job was running Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood's clothing line in America. And... She started hearing this stuff, seeing this stuff. She met Africa Bambata, the Rocksteady crew. This is around 1981. And she got into, first of all, she went up, they took her up to Disco Fever, as we were just saying. And she was getting into this stuff. She started to promote her night at the Club Negril, which is exactly as, as you just mentioned. Eventually, the, the whole thing got too big and slightly too chaotic for the Club Negril and various other reasons moved to the Roxy, which is like four times bigger. It's a much, much bigger space promoting this stuff. Let's listen to the first clip. This is about hip-hop not just being rap, but it's about DJs, it's about diversity. It was a much more mixed scene than the cliché that, in a way, hip-hop has become subsequently. Party people, party people, can you get funky? Suicide force, can you get funky? What most people don't understand is hip-hop is not rap music. Yeah. Hip-hop was never supposed to be just about one form of music. It was, all, you know, all kinds of music, and you'll hear that from all the, all the original guys. Mm. You know, and, this, and our, you know, my club embodied that, too. It, was, it wasn't just hip-hop. It was a bit of everything. We had, you know, white people, black people, Asian I mean, you name it, they came. Mm. Punks. I mean, the pistols were down there every week, you know, um, as well as, you know, Debbie Harry and, you know, Joey Ramone. And, you know, it was like all walks of life, rock, funk, you know, whatever. She's very interesting about it. I mean, she kind of remembers it enormously fondly. She talks about how 
hip hop exploded. You know, the likes of Russell Simmons was just starting up his label at the time, would be on the phone to her all the time, badgering her, wanting to get in because he wasn't on any A lists in those days. Rick Rubin was still sitting in his dorm room at NYU. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and then there's things like, you know, Bam and of course Planet Rock, sort of, you know, Arthur Baker getting involved in there. The important, and again, the second clip we'll listen to, it talks about how the MCs were every bit as important as the rappers. In those days, the rappers weren't really rappers as such. They were MCs who were there to boost the vibe of the room rather than anything beyond that. Let's have a listen to this clip. You say one for the trouble, two for the time. Come on, girls, let's rock that. You see, back then, people weren't even into making money. It was all about having a laugh. Right. Fun. That was the driving force. No one imagined that this would happen, what's happened. Yeah. <laughs> it was like beyond their comprehension. It was like, what? They wouldn't make a record with me? You know, it was more like, it was very innocent, and, you know, like all scenes are, I guess. But it was really special. I mean, you know, every everyone and their mother was there. Like Russell Simmons started there. I can remember Russell Simmons, like, you know, poor and, you know, that's far too much. Well, yeah, you know. Poor and not on the phone. Poor and not on, not on the, yeah, on the A-list. <laughs> you know, calling me every five seconds. Oh, can you do this? Can you do that? And I'll be okay. Now I'll try and get him on the phone. <laughs> but, um, you know, they all started there, like the Tommy Boys, everyone. You say one for the trouble, two for the time. Come on, girls, let's rock that. I think it's worth it's worth just putting this in context again. Just that it's it was an interview done in 1998 by Bill and Frank of DJ History. So, yes. you know, they're they're it's it's 15, 16 years after the fact. She's sure. looking back, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. And also, um, a certain music journalist gets mentioned in this. Is that so, Mark? Yeah, I think maybe we should listen to this. This is, I think, the third clip. Let's have a listen to this. Do you know what happened to Richard Grable? Because he did a lot of stuff yeah, for the NME. Yeah, he wrote that off for the Oh, really? Yeah, he was, he was writing for the NME. Yeah, time. no, he was, because I've got... I, I used to keep every issue with the NME. In fact, I've got wow. 20 years with at home, and... He wrote all of the stuff about black culture in New yeah. York, but he kind of disappeared. He might be a good person. Well, He's a lawyer now. Is he? Yeah. High-profile, influential, powerful lawyer. Well, I mentioned to you yeah. like, that it'd be great to talk to you because he wrote about so many things. Quite he got it right, well. and he got it right. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Very nice. <laughs> I hope, that, hope that's gratifying to hear after yeah, all these that, 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 that was mostly Bill Brewster there talking. They were actually researching their book last night, A DJ Saved My Life, which is the great history of, uh, uh, of the DJ. Oh, I read that book. It's a fantastic book. It, it's really good, isn't it? Really good. Very comprehensive, exhaustive. Absolutely. Now, we should, we should set the scene for our listeners in terms of what Negril was physically. Sure. Negril was a basement club. Yeah. It was a small, windowless basement. Yeah. We, we, we are not talking about anything glamorous. Mm-hmm. You know, this, and it was not big. So, and it started getting crowded. But when you were there, you really had the feeling that you were at the center of the universe. 
Right. You were in the only place you wanted to be. Yes, because I mean, she talks about it. it was basically a West Indian club. That's, for, for most of the other nights of the week, it was a place where reggae was played. Bob Marley would go down there when he visited New York and so on and so forth. And her night yeah. was just this, this one other night. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And her night became the music slash social event you know, in, in for you know for the New York scene. Yeah, and yeah. she was absolutely a fantastic person. She had a real sort of homing instinct mm-hmm. for finding who was doing what and getting them into her orbit. She was just fantastic at it. That's great. It's really good to hear. I mean, she, t- she later on she talks about Malcolm McLaren going to the onto the Roxy in disguise and being very nervous while going on stage with the double Dutch girls, and then hilariously taking the Rocksteady crew to London to play the Royal Variety performance and meeting the Queen. Wow! Uh, <laughs> and one of them does the big no-no. He asks the Queen a question. You're not meant to ask the Queen nothing, but right. it's, it, it's, it's very entertaining stuff. It's, it's yeah. really good. Yeah, Richard, I wanted to, to quote just the, from the, the last like couple of paragraphs of that, of that cover story, because it's just interesting in the context of Cool Lady Blue, for example, bringing hip-hop downtown. I'm not saying she was the first or the only person to do that, but obviously those Roxy Nights were very, very important in terms she of... Might, she well, might have been the first. It might I be think, fair to say. I, I think Fab Five Freddy was the first guy to actually do anything, bring anyone down. Ah, okay, yes, that could yeah, be, yeah. yeah. But she was certainly right there, you know, at the beginning of it all, yes, yeah. no, yes. no doubt. It was interesting to read this this particular paragraph in, the, in in that piece. It's too easy to play instant sociologist with this stuff. There's a tendency among the white downtown art elite in New York to treat rap as exotica to be put on display. It's telling that the first performance by a rap group downtown was the Funky Four Plus One's appearance at the Kitchen, which is not a club but a Soho artist space so i just that was an interesting i mean given we're talking about you and we're talking about cool lady blue and we'll be talking about the beastie boys later i'm quite so interested in the sort of relationship between shall we say white appreciators and you know black scene makers and artists how did you feel about that at the time and how do you look back on that now at the time i was you know as i as i expressed in in, in that piece i was a little concerned that you know, we white hipsters were, you know, sort of looking at this as some, you know, exotic thing, you know, to be put on a pedestal, when in fact, it was not exotic to the people who were really making it and consuming it. And what it was for them was their music. Yeah. And, you know, for, but for us, it was not just music, it was a representation of a culture. And you can't ignore the sociological fact that in New York at that time and still to this day, there was a big gulf between white culture and black culture. Mm-hmm. It would have been irresponsible of me as a journalist to ignore that gulf. And I wanted to address the different ways that that gulf was being breached. At the beginning, yeah, people, you know, rappers and and the Rocksteady crew were performing in art spaces because it was the art spaces that were at first the only ones who were inviting them or who even knew that this was going on. And then, 
And then Blue started doing the, you know, the nights at Negril. And, you know, Negril was not an art space. As, as I said, it was a, mm-hmm. a you know, a, 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 a dank basement where people went to hang out and, and dance. And, you know, and that started crossing it over from the type of people who would go to a rarefied art space like the kitchen to the type of people who might just, you know, want to go to a club. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard, if we, I've included just as a sort of afterthought piece on the homepage, the Run DMC, short Run DMC piece that you wrote for Musician in 1984. And that was partly because I just wanted to, to know from you what had changed by, by 1984. If we look at, if we look at that year, for example, that's when Def Jam is founded by the aforementioned Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin. And you get the first Beastie Boys and LL Cool J tracks. Also, David Toop's Rap Attack book comes out. So this is like three years on. How do you remember hip hop starting to sort of really mushroom in the culture? What I remember is that it gradually built up in terms of how often you heard it on the street, how often you heard your friends talking about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's still, it's, it still wasn't really driven by mainstream media. It was still, you know, the rock press and so on. But it suddenly, it suddenly became ubiquitous. It was everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, you were hearing these records and you were hearing about these artists. And also, really, you know, if you were paying attention, you were also hearing about the entrepreneurs. You know, people like Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin started attracting attention on their own for who they were in a way that really, you know, hadn't happened with, you know, with rock music. You know, maybe there would be an occasional business section piece where they would interview Clive Davis. but, But, you know, no one really cared about the Clive Davises of the world, but people found Russell Simmons to be extremely fascinating as a character in his own right. I mean, also, you, you also, you had the evolution of the rapper as the primary person of, you know, the, 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 the spoken word from the message, really, I guess, Grandmaster Flash, the message through to run DMC, that the, the DJ went into the background, the DJ was guy, just the guy producing the beats. When as, Cool Lady Blue in the interview says that, that in the early days it was actually all about the DJs and then looping the, that those same breakbeats round and round. By '83, Run DMC was starting to break through. That it was really sort of, and it's all about these 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 front guys. And, and, and I think and the the, the message of I mean, you said the message, but the political message of that stuff also factors into that quite sure. strongly because previously it hadn't been it'd been about partying and about yeah, yeah you know rapping fast and all that sort of thing whereas then in fact in this run dmc piece richard you say rap continues to have plenty to say and with good reason the unemployment underemployment and general hardship that afflict ghetto kids aren't ending under the reign of reaganomics so you know it i think that's part of what continues to give rap its longevity is that people are trying to actually say something with the music that's important to make popular music kind of popular absolutely and that one track the message by grandmaster flash Mm. was a key pivotal moment Mm -hmm. 
in terms of people introducing those kinds of themes into the lyrics. A child is born with no state of mind, blind to the ways of mankind. God is smiling on you, but he's frowning too, because only God knows what you'll go through. You'll grow in the ghetto, living second rate, and your eyes will sing a song, because deep hate the places you play and where you stay looks like one great big alleyway. We were talking briefly about the Beastie Boys, and given they are about to release a 25th anniversary deluxe edition of Hello Nasty, which was their... <laughs> fifth album i said one of my favorite of their albums what was i mean how significant were these three like upper middle class brats from manhattan and what did you think when you first heard like rock hard and then like a couple of years later the license to to ill album what were your thoughts about them richard i loved it i loved it as soon as i heard it you know of course i thought they're stealing from 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 rappers but i also thought so what it's music. Mm-hmm. Everybody steals from everybody, and they're and they're doing their own thing with it. Run DMC were also extremely important in in introducing uh, rock elements yeah. into hip hop. Mm, so there was there was you know cross pollination going in both directions. You know, Run DMC started adding you know rock guitar lines to sure. their tracks, and the Beastie Boys had been a hardcore band. Like yeah, a right. punk band, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. started as a hardcore punk band, and you know they were hanging out in a rehearsal basement that was probably just down the block from the grill. Right. So you know they became exposed to to the hip hop scene and 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 you know got inspired by it. Yeah. You also make the point in the Run DMC piece that that they were responsible to, to, to a large degree for bringing in the kind of street clothes that, that they were not dressing like the Furious Five had dressed, right? You know, suddenly you're seeing like Adidas trainers mm-hmm. and that, that that's a really important moment, isn't it? I, I mean, I, I would actually say Run DMC were the sort of the first in, in many ways to do that. Mm-hmm. And and they say they got that from the Cold Crush crew, that, 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 that it, was, it wasn't about fancy stage clothes. It was about adidas it was about keds it was about you know all of that sort of street gear well, they sang a song about my adidas didn't they Am I, yes. I got that right yeah exactly so- yes my adidas because then for years after you didn't really see many hip-hop artists who who didn't dress street mm-hmm. to a greater or lesser degree so i think it was really important in the in the, in the kind of appearance and style of hip-hop. Yeah, in Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, in, in their performances, were very much in a mainstream showbiz kind of mm-hmm. tradition of putting on a costume specially for the show and having, you know, choreographed, you know, moves and, and, and stuff like that. And Studied DM- leather jackets and things, right? Exactly. <laughs> I remember, yeah. Exactly. And Run DMC were the opposite. They said, no, we're going to go on in the clothes we wear every day. Yep. And it was a brilliant move in terms of the identification between performer and audience. Exactly. Right. Exactly. You know, it's interesting. There are a, a, a couple of intersections of the fashion world and the hip-hop world one of them is what you referred to, that cool lady blue, when she first came here, you know, was here on a, on, on a fashion-related mission. That's right. You know, for, for, for Malcolm and, and, and Vivian. Another data point there 
is Nine Nine Records, which was two English people, Ed Ballman and his partner, Gina Franklin. They opened up a clothing boutique at 99 McDougal Street. And then Ed started, so they, they started, you know, importing British fashion to, to downtown New York. And then Ed started bringing over records, mostly that he got at, at Rough Trade. And it became not just a boutique for clothing, but also a boutique for records. And then he, Ed Ballman started a, his label, 99 Records, and he found a rock band called Liquid Liquid. And oh, they yes. had yes. a song called Caverns, which then was sampled by Grandmaster Flash. <laughs> yeah. For, yeah, for White Lines. Yeah. For White Lines. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> and yeah. and the, the story is, of course, is that like everyone else, everyone was suing Sugar Hill by that point. And Sugar Hill declared bankruptcy before Liquid Liquid could see a penny of, of that money. Sheik had been really smart, had you know, worked out that Rapper's Delight stole uh, good times, uh, good yeah. times, uh, and ended up with like three quarters of the cash, you know. But prod Liquid Liquid never saw a penny for that. <laughs> Liquid Liquid and Nine Nine Records never saw a penny, and there is another story about that, which I can repeat only as rumor. I do not know <laughs> for a fact, but I have been told many times that Ed Ballman did have a lawyer write to Sugar Hill Records making a claim mm-hmm. for the sample and was then visited by a couple of goons really? at his shop who told him that it would be in the best interest of his health and welfare <laughs> to drop the lawsuit. And I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was. It was. And poor Ed Ballman was a very gentle soul. Right. And what I've heard is that this freaked him out so much that he pretty much had a nervous breakdown and closed up shop. Wow. Um, I mean, Sugar Hill, their hands were dirty in all kinds of respects. I mean, Mo Levy was a major investor in the whole sort of thing. When the studio burnt down, a lot of people were saying it was an insurance scam. You know, people simply didn't get paid. The band all left as soon as they could. I mean, dear old Sylvia Robinson, very important woman in many, many respects, but the business practices left something to be desired. Yeah, we we have the epic Vanity Fair piece that Stephen Daly wrote about Sugar Hill on Rock's Back Pages, and it is pretty hair-raising. There is a long history, and this is a book waiting to be written, about the intersections between the music business, all of it, the white mm-hmm. music business and the black music business, between the music business and organized crime. Yeah. Well, there's Hitman, of course, which you must have read Hitman. Yes. Frederick Dannon, which was which came out in the late 80s, I think, which was certainly an attempt yes. to do but just H- that. Hitman was focused more, as I recall, on the promote on the promo aspects. Yes. You know, on yes. the independent Joe promoter Esquire and people like that. Yeah, yeah. Thing. Exactly. But what I'm talking about is more you know, that Sugar Hill Records was rumored to have been founded with money that the Robinsons made from their position running numbers. Really? I didn't know that. Okay. You know, that roulette records, you know, Morris Levy. Yeah, yeah. Was funded by the Gambino crime family. You know, (laughs) this stuff goes way back. Yes. It may be that some more time needs to pass before that book can be be safely written, (laughs) shall we say. I'm not going to write it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so 
My final question in terms of hip hop would be, did you ever see hip hop becoming the the long lasting phenomenon that it has been? And have you followed it through to the present day? Do you ever think there's a parallel universe where, where rap was just a kind of flash in the pan sort of novelty moment that then just sort of faded away and we never heard it about it again? I mean, is it extraordinary to you that, that your first kind of paddling in that pool, I mean, look, look where we are all these years later 40 plus years later i'm not going to say oh i knew it from the beginning because i sure. certainly didn't and in that piece on curtis blow I, I i said up front i don't know if this is a moment or or something that will last sure. but i think if you see the evolution in my pieces from that first piece to the later ones i think in the later ones i start referring to the fact that this thing is here to stay mm-hmm. and that this thing is culturally important and yeah, look what happened. <laughs> as yeah. as Barney said earlier, it became the dominant form of popular music. Yeah, yeah. And and still is, uh, and is still, you know, where the creative energy is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Flash says to you at the end of the interview that you did that came out in September 81, they say rap's going to die out of this world. No way. It's to the point now where even professional singers, they use it in their records to get hot. I say to myself, God, this is something we created, and now it's being taken over by people that's been in the business a long time. And on that note, I'd like to ask you about the business. And when I met you 42 years ago, or thereabouts in New York, Richard, were you already training to be a lawyer at that point, or did that follow on? I think that was, that was later. I do lose track of my own timeline. <laughs> And there, and, there, and there was, you know, a, a three-year period while I was in law school and writing for the NNE at the same time. That's what I figured there must have been some overlap. There was, there was overlap, and everyone thought I was crazy. I would be at Danceteria at 2 a.m. watching Flipper, and my friends <laughs> would be saying, don't you have law school in the morning? And then I would be dragging my ass to law school at 9am going, oh, I was out late last night. (laughs) What was the motivation for you to be doing that? Like what drove you to that? Well, I knew I wanted to be a music lawyer. When I first applied to law school, you have to write an application essay. And I said, I'm already involved in music as a music journalist. And I want to transition from being a music journalist to being a music lawyer. My going to law school, it was never, oh, maybe I'll work for a big corporate law firm or maybe I'll work for a bank. It was always specifically I was going to be a music lawyer who represented musicians. That that was my motive. Wow. Can I tell you a, a little anecdote of, of yes, a pivotal please. moment? <laughs> I was interviewing Joe Strummer. Right. The interview started down at Electric Lady studio, Studios where they were recording Sandinista. And for some reason... Joe Strummer took a liking to me, and when they were done recording, he said, let's get out of here and continue the interview back at my hotel room. So he and I taxied up to uh, the Essex House on Central Park, and we started doing the interview. And then at some point, I turned my tape recorder off, and it just turned into a free-form like talk, and we were there for a couple hours. And at one point, unbidden, Joe Strummer starts talking about his lawyer. And he starts talking about how he felt that his lawyer didn't fight hard enough for the clash on issues of creative control. He, he gave the lawyer credit for doing very well on financial issues. They got good advances. They got good royalty mm-hmm. rates. But he felt that on creative control issues, the lawyer hadn't been aggressive enough. 
And I'm sitting there, and I had not started law school yet at this point. And I'm sitting there going, my God, this man is the biggest rock star in my world. And he doesn't fully trust his lawyer. I bet if I went to law school and became a lawyer, I could be the kind of lawyer that people like him would trust. Right. Right, and that right. was a pivotal moment for me in deciding, yeah, I'm going to go to law school. Wow. Wow. Huh. Wow. Great story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, so you owe a lot to the late Joe Stromba. That's really, really interesting. So how did it, um, how did it progress? What was, what, was, what was the first – tell us about your first clients and how you fought for that creative control. Tell us, tell us about how it, how it unfolded, Richard. Well, I went to law school, as I said, you know, while – you know, being the the enemy guy in New York, got out of law school. Initially, I was not able to get a job at a real music firm. I got a job at a general practice firm where I said to them, I'll do your general practice work, which was like just run-of-the-mill lawyering, mm-hmm. apartment closings, trusts and estates, you know, whatever they mm-hmm. had. I said to them, I'll do all that work for you, but I really want to be a music lawyer. So if I can get clients, even if they can't pay, I want you to let me do that work from out of this office. And they said, okay. And because of being known as a journalist, I was actually able to start getting clients right away. One of my first clients was a record store where I used to go all the time to shop for my hip hop singles, a place called Vinyl Mania down on on Carmine Street in the village. The next client that came in the door was a guy named Ben Vaughn, who had a band called the Ben Vaughn Combo. Combo. Mm -hmm. And then one day the phone rang, and it was Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth. Wow. Who were my absolute favorite band at the time. I had never written about them, but they were my favorite band. And they knew me because they read my writing all the time. Mm -hmm. And I had a relationship with them that was based on the fact that we were always at the same clubs seeing the same bands and Thurston from Sonic Youth would come up to me at clubs and say something like, Oh, I love that review of the new meat puppets album. (laughs) So we had a relationship based on all of us being music fans and in kind of the same scene, but I had just gotten out of law school and I thought that Sonic Youth were the most important band in the world. So when they came to meet with me, I tried to talk them out of hiring me. I said, look, I just got out of law school and I don't know what I'm doing yet, but I do know the names of the big prominent music lawyers and I'll call one of them for you and explain to them how artistically important you are and get them to take, take you on. And they said, no, no, we want you. And I said, but I just got out of law school. I don't know what I'm doing yet. And they said, but we know that you're a real music guy. So we trust you. Wow. I literally tried to talk them out of hiring me and failed at that. (laughs) And and they became my client. Fantastic. That's a great, great story. And then I got recruited to join a real proper music firm. And the fellow who recruited me to join that firm was a, a guy who I knew from music industry networking events. I knew he worked at this big music law firm, but I really knew him because he lived in the village quite near Vinyl Mania. And on Saturdays, he and I were always at Vinyl Mania thumbing through the crates (laughs) together, doing that record collector nerd thing side by side. And that's really how I got to to know him. Crate digging. I love it. Basically, you can can trust a nerd, right? That's what this boils down to. 
so it, it was really my crate digging habits on, you know, every Saturday that led to my first real music law job. Fantastic. Amazing. And from Sonic Youth, who were the next? I mean, I, obviously, I know some of the the acts that you've represented over the years and that you represent now. Give us well, some Sonic, highlights. Sonic, yeah. Sonic Youth were friends with Jay Maskus from Dinosaur Jr. Right. And also, at the time, a guy who was in this orbit, a guy named Don Fleming, was – do you know that name? Yes. So Don Fleming was playing in Dinosaur Jr. at the time. So Don dragged Jay Maskus up to my office. <laughs> By the hair. <laughs> By the hair. <laughs> All right. I have a Jay Maskus story. Okay. <laughs> it was the winter, and Don and Jay come to see me, and Jay didn't say much, as is his habit. He's a man of few words. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, Don Fleming called me, and I said, Don, was Jay comfortable in the meeting? He didn't say much, and he never even took off his coat. And Don <laughs> says, yeah, but he took off his gloves. That means he was comfortable. That means he likes you. I've read a lot of interviews, inverted commas, with, with Dinosaur Jr., where getting anything out of Jay is very, very hard work indeed for the, the writers concerned. Jay really did not like to speak. He spoke through his guitar. (laughs) Yes, indeed. And then Don Fleming was friends with the guys in Teenage Fan Club. Right. And so he introduced me to them. So then I became their lawyer. You also must have seen so many changes in the music business in in your years of you know, as a journalist, but subsequently as a lawyer, seeing the insides of the music business as you would as a lawyer. It must be extraordinary. It must be a very different world now from the world that, you know, it, you, you joined in the, in the 1980s. It's very different in all kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. But probably the most profound change I've seen in my time is the move from physical distribution to streaming. Sure. That, you know, from a lawyer's point of view, that has changed everything because it changes the whole calculus about how the artist gets paid. Sure. And not in the artist's favor. Not in the artist's favor. And we in the artist community, the lawyers and managers who represent artists, we're still struggling yeah. to, to get the contracts up to speed as far as how we get paid on streaming. Sure. Yeah, but how, long is, how long do you think that's going to take? It's getting there. Okay. It's getting there. It, it, it's in process. I, I, I don't know how to predict how long it's going to take, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely in process. But these things happen incrementally. You know, yeah. The, yeah. the business side of thing always resists revolution. And the lawyers who represent record labels – are very averse to changing the contract forms. Sure. So we, we, we have to push and push and push, you know, to get the royalty provisions regarding streaming to where we want them to be. Yeah, yeah. And one of the problems is there's such a big, the imbalance between those artists who get the top volumes of streams and that those who don't, that you can't really, as a fan, you can't control where your the money that you pay for your streaming service goes means that it's becoming just this stratified situation of just like the top artists getting the vast majority of the money. That's a very good point. And it, it mirrors what's going on in society at large. 
you know, we have mm-hmm. we have increasing income inequality in society in general. Yeah. I think you have that in the UK. We have it very dramatically in the US. And the same thing is ref- is is reflected in the streaming world, where the top one percent of artists get most of the money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the same, same in the acting profession, isn't it? So, and that's of course resulted in this right as this strike in in Hollywood. So, I mean, maybe maybe these imbalances are going to be redressed in some ways, as you say, incrementally. How much longer do you think you'll be representing artists? As long as I can. Uh, I love yeah, what yeah. I do. You're still going to flip a. You're not going to flip a gig still two in the morning, but he's still no. going out to shows. <laughs> not as much as I used to. Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> it's too it's too exhausting. Yes. <laughs> if I go to a show midweek, I just i I can't really function the next day. I yeah. have music rattling around in my brain all night. I don't get any sleep. And I'm yeah. just dead, just absolutely useless the next yeah. day so i have to be a little, little bit careful but jasper went to see rufus wainwright last night at the albert hall with a what, 65 piece orchestra or something jasper's out there he's basically going to gigs for the rest of us <laughs> <laughs> That's i mean right. i used to go to the gig and then the after party <laughs> <laughs> But those, go, those that's the good straight stuff. from the after party to, to law school, right? But yeah, but those days are over because my recovery yeah. time is much longer. Yeah, what recovery time? Right, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. Well, listen, it's been absolutely fabulous speaking with you about all of that, Richard. I'm so so pleased you were able to join us. Stick around while we just um, Mark is Mark and Jasper are going to just tell us about some pieces they've added. If anything rings a bell, or you have a forceful opinion on anything that they mentioned, just put up your hand and jump in. Mark, okay. first of all, from last week, Paul Nelson and lengthy interview with Jackson Brown for Rolling Stone in 1976. Jackson Brown talking about Warren Zevon, who he had produced Warren's first album, I believe. Is that correct, Barney? Correct. Uh, Yeah. Jackson says, I'm more consciously symbolic, trying to be meaningful. Maybe I'm a little too structural, a little too careful about how I represent myself, a little too much of the ringmaster, the entrepreneur, the illusionist. Too cautious about how people see me and what I want them to think about me. Warren's rather raw, you know rather uncompromising in his language. I mean, I've never written about things that Warren has written about, but I've lived them, so why aren't they my songs? Which I, I just love. This, you know? it's, it's, it's a great question. I mean, so just just to mention that we added a second Warren Zevon audio interview last week. Well, it will be last week by the time this episode comes out. Yeah. And um, it, it's it's just wonderful. I mean, I'm a huge Zevon fan. I think he was not only just a brilliant songwriter, but he's certainly one of the smartest people I think has ever, like, you know, been in rock and roll. Uh, did you ever, were you ever a fan, Richard? Oh, I loved Warren Zevon. I don't think I ever interviewed him or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but the album Excitable Boy yes. is classic. Absolutely yeah, yeah. a great album, front to back, the whole thing. Well, he went down to dinner in his Sunday best. Excitable boy, they all said. And he popped a pot roast all over his chest. Excitable boy. Also from last week, Ray Parker Jr. being interviewed by Helen Fitzgerald from Melody Maker and talking about why he's basically 
not a, he's an unmarried man. He says, money brings out the worst in people. Why should a girl work hard at a job or a career to buy herself luxuries and the privileges of traveling around the world when she could work on me for a year or two, then walk off with half of what I've worked hard myself to accomplish? Jeez, charming. <laughs> Old <laughs> school. It's deep, deep, deeply uncharming. the guy who um, pinched Ghostbusters. This week, Robin Katz interviewing the marvellous Betty Davis for Let It Rock in 1975. And, and she says... I sang Miles, he was a big freak, so that he'd know how it went before he heard it on, played on the radio next to one of his own songs, which was often done. This is Miles Davis, of course. And he just put his head in his hand and said, Betty, how could you write that song? I told him, Miles, what can I say? Everybody knows about you. And he just laughed. <laughs> he loved it. Miles has a great sense of humour, you know. I, uh, that's fantastic. I, I, I love Betty Davis. I mean, I think... Well, yeah, she amazing. she was so responsible for, for kind of turning him into a big freak in some ways, yeah. wasn't she, Mark? Yeah, very, very much. to say. I mean, Changed his she, appearance, got him out of the Italian suits into the, kind of the hippie gear, turned him onto Jimi Hendrix and turned him onto a lot of electric music that he wasn't listening to before. Well, he's well, always exactly. given... And he's always given her a lot of credit. He was a big freak! Then this, again this week, is George Michael being interviewed by Chris Heath for Smash Hits in 1987, shortly after his solo career had emerged post-Wham. And of course, there's a conversation about sexuality. Chrissy says, and you've never denied being gay. And, and George says, yeah, but that's for three reasons. One, because I was playing with it. Secondly, I think it's extremely distasteful. Once you get to a position of public renown, you're supposed to prove your sexuality one way or another. Thirdly, what's the point in denying it? It doesn't make any difference. If people want to believe it, they will. I have no doubts about my sexuality. Anyway, if I'd thought about sleeping with men, and if I was going to do it, I wouldn't sit here and set to smash hits. Sexuality is a totally a private thing and should always stay that way. This was the then still closeted George Michael. And of course, that, that, um, a certain incident in a Los Angeles public lavatory put paid, paid to, to that. that. <laughs> but he then handled really well. Which he know? handled brilliantly. Which he handled fantastically There's well. yet another George Michael documentary, this time produced by Simon Napier-Bell, coming out this weekend. That is the fourth, I believe, in a row over the last 18 months. It's Jesus quite Christ. extraordinary. It's, it's, it's enough. Anyway. Enough. <laughs> <laughs> have you got anything else for us, Mr. Pringle? No, that's it. Jasper, what have you got? I've got three things to mention. First of which is not so much a new piece, but it's part of our longer bisection. I just wanted to shout out Smash Mouth. The lead singer, Steve Harwell, died. This week, as of recording, you know, responsible for the for the huge, huge all star, and so we went looking for some stuff on him, and featuring Mark Weingarten live review of them at the Long Beach Pyramid in California. Mark Weingarten reviews it for the LA Times, and this is before All Stars, nineteen ninety nine. It's interesting because it almost seems as if the San Jose Quintet has assimilated every musical fad of the decade and slammed them all together using its wit as the mortar. Smash Mouth knows what makes a crowd go buck wild, so it's fashioned a sound that pushes the right musical buttons at the right times. And I think that's fair to say also of the of the later hit that you know it was it was partly such a big hit because it was featured in Shrek and and in all these you know game trailers and all everything and then it had this 
amusing second life as like one of the biggest music memes of all time where just like it got covered i mean there's this guy who does he posts supposed covers of songs on youtube but instead every time to the backing track of any given track he'll sing the lyrics to smash mouth's all-star it's it's all quite sort of self-referential but quite funny it's all deeply 21st century and i don't understand any of it <laughs> which is why i'm bringing it up mark which is why i'm bringing it up somebody once told me the world is gonna roll me i ain't the sharpest tool in the shed she was looking kind of dumb with her finger and her thumb in the shape of an L on her forehead next up this ties in more to what we were saying in this episode is is uh, amy linden writing for honey magazine Britney can move, Christina can blow, and InSync got some street cred with Gone. Is Blue-Eyed Soul the rebirth of cool? And she's writing about, you know, the early 2000s, March 2001, a sort of renewed interest from white musicians in, quote-unquote, urban sounds, as, as they were often referred to at that point, meaning, of course, black sounds. It's been the dirty secret of the industry that once white artists, i.e. the mainstream, tap into black music, the stepchild of the music industry, their pop hybrid is given a stamp of legitimacy. Only then is black music allowed to be mass-marketed to a wider audience and, through exposure, allowed to become pop and reap the financial rewards. And I just think it's an interesting piece to, to mention, given everything that we've talked about. And, sure. and she's really writing about exploring that as a theme writing about you know britney and insync and gwen stefani and eminem and nelly Furtado and and all these people that are, are doing something with might say appreciating or might say appropriating it's it's a it's an ongoing debate still today yeah but it's a good piece it ties very much into the history of hip-hop with rapture by blondie yeah being absolutely being something that kind of you know turned on a lot of white kids to rap mm-hmm. Then, of course, the Beastie Boys, who we were talking about yeah, earlier. Of course. You know. yeah. Just to, briefly, to just going back to Blondie, I, there's one of the pieces that I was reading ahead of this episode was said that Chris and Debbie of Blondie first went up to the South Bronx and I think went to Disco Fever in 1978, like three years before Rapture came out. Which is which is interesting, but you know, it doesn't. It's not surprising, you know, because they they both which sort of genuinely interested in what was sort of going on in in places like that. So, yeah, anyway, yeah. Lastly, Lord Be Praised, Rob Fitzpatrick interviews Lord. She's interested. She's 16 at the point of this interview in 2013, and she's had a smash hit with Royals that was just blew up. I think half the rubbish on the radio is too worried about what's current, she says. If you worry about that, you're only going to sound dated because you can't predict what's going to be cool. Only timeless songwriting is cool. And I just think it's an interesting thing for a 16-year-old to say, to be sort of so laser-focused on trying to write timeless songs. And I don't know whether, you know, Royals is a timeless song, but it's a pretty great song, I think. Richard, I mean, what is the closest you've come to working with like a a massive sort of iconic pop figure such as some of the ones we've been talking about britney and and in sync have you come any anywhere near near that world that stratosphere no no not interested it isn't so much that i'm not interested perhaps it is because one of the things i've always tried to do in my law career is only take on clients whose music i really liked that was the rule I set for myself when I got out of law school. It's not that I don't like pop music, but it's not what I'm principally drawn to. And anyway, you know, getting clients is all about relationship networks. And I didn't right. have that relationship network. Although the number one album on the pop charts this week 
is Zach Bryan. And I have a couple of clients who have featured artist appearances on that album. So, okay. Now, now <laughs> you're getting closer. So yeah. <laughs> a, a couple of weeks ago, I was telling people, Oh, I'm in the, I'm in the country world now, but now Zach has crossed over. So now I'm in the pop world. <laughs> well, there en- you go. En- enjoy it, and may it last a long time. Um, uh, listen, it's been really wonderful speaking with you, and you know, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I would just say to anyone listening, you know, subscribe to Rock's Back Pages to read Richard's wonderful pieces for the New York Rocker, for NME, for musician, and so forth. You can read these hip hop pieces that we've talked about. You can read them for free for a, a week, along with other. Uh, you know hip hop related stuff so that brings us to the conclusion of the episode we'll be back in a couple of weeks with Mick Gold who was going to come in and talk to us about among other things the wonderful Let It Rock magazine which was incredibly important to me when I was a teenager and I believe we'll be listening to uh, clips from a quite recent Bruce Springsteen audio interview. So we'll be talking about the boss. I think it's Bruce Day coming up quite soon. We haven't talked about Bruce a lot on the podcast, so we'll be. It'll be interesting to see what he's that... just, he's, he's just cancelled tour, hasn't he? Because he's got ulcers. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. Help us. Oh, well, okay. So, but I believe that there's that New Jersey is proclaiming the 23rd of September Bruce Day. So, so we'll <laughs> celebrate that in our own way. In our own way. Uh, yes, in our own <laughs> way. But thanks again so much yeah. for, for joining us, Richard. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye. I was almost in harmony. Well, the years start coming and they don't stop coming. Fed to the rules and I hit the ground running. Didn't make sense not to live for fun. Your brain gets smart, but your head gets dumb. So much to do, so much to see. So what's wrong with taking the back streets? You'll never know if you don't go. That concludes episode 160 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Richard Grable. For representation, contact Davis Shapiro, Lewitt and Grable, LLP, at dslglaw.com. That was to Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper, Muris and Bowie. The Rockback Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Hey now, you're an all-star.